You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. And welcome to another episode of The Gentleman's Guide to Golden Showers. I am Large William. Across the stream from me is Sammy. Oh, Large William! And that will make no sense unless you've seen one of the films we're covering this week. Maybe both. <laughs> I forgot to tell you I was going to do the whole review in that voice. That's amazing. If you can keep it up, that's uh, commitment. <laughs> yeah. My make or break. <laughs> the squat down in the hood of the flex there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be wicked, man. Get the old sizzler going. So we, uh, with some of these references we've been uh, dropping on you guys uh it's one of the two films we're covering this is our diabolic dvd episode no nah, man see now nah, i got this urge that every line i say i hear the voice telling me to say it like that. <laughs> um so i gotta cut it i gotta squash that um we're doing 1972's across 110th street directed by barry Shear. barry Shear, dare by yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's <laughs> "The Dance of Reality," where yes. one, where one of the one of the uh, keyword plot keywords is cock and ball torture. <laughs> so, yeah. amongst many interesting <laughs> plot keywords. Yeah. Yes. yes. So we. Uh, we are recording. It is a night recording, so it may get blue, may get a little wacky. Um, Sammy's uh, in a parking lot. Um, in, uh, it's already got, it's already gotten blue over here, thereby. That's right, and it's uh, and he's in the coast of Tocopilla. It's a coastal town on the edge of Chile. Yeah, Chilean so. parking lot in the McDonald's, thereby. <laughs> yeah. Um, so bear with us if it gets a little bit uh, dodgy in terms of reception. Um, I should say this is episode 311. 
Wow, three one one. Yeah, three one one. So large in the margin. Only a couple people know what that means there. That's right, man. <laughs> little little uh, alternative '90s alternative rock uh, drop there from uh, Sammy Derby. The deep cut. <laughs> yeah. So, um, without further ado, what have you been watching, good sir? Um, I've been watching a few things. Uh, after I watched uh, the two films for the show, I thought, man, this is too much uh, uh, fictional world for me. Well, actually, the dance, dance of reality kind of broke my brain a little bit, so I thought, man, I may need to watch some documentaries. And, you know, I always go to the documentaries when all else fails, so <laughs> I headed that way and ended up watching five of them. <laughs> nice. So, uh, first one I watched was Mr. Dynamite, The Rise of James Brown. Amazing. Which is uh, essentially what it says. It's uh, more about the, you know, the, the, the beginnings of James Brown, his childhood, uh, there were some things about his childhood I didn't know. And uh, if you're a big fan of James Brown, I don't think you're going to get a lot from this. Uh, it is a nice uh, celebration of his, what it says in the title, the rise of James Brown. It doesn't get into any of the dark elements uh, of James Brown's life. Uh, a little bit of his childhood, but, you know, James, Mr. Brown went through some pretty dark and devastating days toward the end there, boy. So, oh, did he ever, man? He was hitting the rock and... Yeah, he really went. Uh, he really went for a spin. So, um, but it, it, it is interesting, and if you're a fan, I think you should definitely check it out. Um, very cool. Uh, not great, but certainly good. Um, I watched uh, video games, the movie. Uh, this is just. Uh, this isn't really much of a. This doesn't really give you a whole lot. Uh, you know, video games are still in their infancy, really, when you consider them to other forms of entertainment. Um, but, uh, it's, it's interesting, um, but I don't know, pretty average. I wouldn't make anybody rush out to watch it or anything. Almost all of these are, well, not Mr. Dynamite. It was on HBO, but video games and a couple of the other ones I'm going to mention here are all on Netflix. So just for the sake of, uh, moving along here, uh, history of the Eagles. Oh yeah. Uh, I could have, I could have got another film in if I wouldn't watch this. This is four hours long. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. So I watched that and, uh, I'm I'm not a, like a huge Eagles guy, but when I was growing up, my father listened to the Eagles quite a bit. He really liked that Southern California '70s, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Eagles, Jackson Brown. He liked all that stuff, and uh, I liked the songwriting quite a bit. And uh, so, it's a bit of nostalgia really to kind of check it out. But Glenn Fry's a tyrant. Didn't yeah. know that man. Nice. I always thought the, I always thought Henley was a tyrant. Looks like Glenn and Don were. A little rough, man. A little rough at the Hotel California. Ben loves power. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he does. Creative control. Uh, <laughs> uh, then switch gears. I just I just finished watching this one, actually. I just watched it uh, on Netflix, uh, Playing for the Mob. It's a 30 for 30. Oh, about, about the, the uh, Boston College uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the point shaving thing with Henry Hill and and uh, the guys that they kind of, you know, Goodfellas is based on some of these, these gangsters that are in this movie. Uh, in this documentary, so it's really interesting. Uh, it's not great, but it's it's certainly a very interesting story. Uh, then my favorite film I watched this week outside of the films for the show is the, definitely the one, uh, one of our listeners turned me on to it. I can't remember who it is. I apologize uh, ahead of time. I would grab my phone, but it might mess up this call. Um, and these calls are touchy, so <laughs> I want to try to make sure it stays, uh, stays balanced. Uh, but one of our listeners hit me up on a Facebook message, says, hey, man, 
there's this 30 for 30 coming out and it's all about Brian Bosworth. And I'm like, what? And, uh, sure enough, there it is. Brian, it's called Brian and the Boz. And, uh, it's an hour and a half movie and it goes into everything Bosworth from his childhood all the way up until, you know, he's making these, uh, he makes these, uh, B, uh, biker movies now called Revelation Road, which I got to see these things. There's three of them. I got to see them. And, um, it's really interesting because I never really thought about it, but if you think about Brian Bosworth, that's kind of the beginnings of what they call the modern athlete. You could maybe argue Joe Namath in a way, but you know that athlete as star, as marketing and, and things like that, big money before they've actually ever stepped on the field type thing. Mm-hmm. I know Boz was one of the first of the pro players, football-wise, to get that big contract before he even played it down. So, Because I think he got five years, $11 million. And, um, right out with the Seahawks and stuff. That's, that's a big contract for the time, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, then it goes into, you know, his life and, you know, how he had destroyed his shoulders playing in Oklahoma and playing football his whole life. And by the time he got to the pros, he, uh, they, the doctor said he had the shoulders of a 60 year old man, which that's Oof. pretty, I mean, for, for those of us to follow football, it's pretty common for linebackers to have very bad shoulders. Yeah. Uh, for obvious reasons, if you watch football. So professional NFL football, I should say. Some people might be thinking soccer, but um, same as basketball players' knees go pretty quickly. Football players, especially linebackers, it seems, those shoulders go quick. So um, they replayed, of course, the Bo Jackson thing. And I always remember the Bo Jackson thing to be a bigger hit than what it was. But when they replayed it in the film context, it looked like it was pretty weak. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, but, you know, comparing Bo Jackson to Brian Bosworth, there's no comparison football-wise. No. Uh, uh, acting wise, big difference, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, 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 football playing wise, no, di- there's no comparison. I mean, Bo Jackson was a, um, a specimen of the highest order when it comes to any sports. And, uh, uh, Brian Bosworth was a specimen in, in some ways, but he wasn't the football player. But anyway, you should definitely check it out. I think you'll like, it. I think a lot of our listeners will like it, especially those that like stone cold and stuff. And, uh, it's really, it's really interesting to see to watch this man develop. And he, he spends most of the film with his son, his son. Now I think his son now, I think his name is Max. And, uh, he spends a lot of time with him and I don't want to give it away, but there's definitely some father son stuff in Brian Bosworth's past that I didn't know about. Well, very interesting. So definitely check it out. Yeah. I saw you watch. I was like, Oh fuck man. I didn't even know it was out. And I saw you're watching that today. Yeah. One of our listeners turned me on to it. I can't remember who it was. And I apologize to that listener right now. You know who you are, though. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's all I got. I don't have anything else. I was, I haven't been doing much else. Uh, there was something I was going to talk about on the show, but I can't remember what it was. Uh, no, no, I don't have it. You've been flexing. I'm, yeah. That, with my 60-year-old brain. <laughs> <laughs> I got an 80-year-old brain. So. <laughs> nice. Very cool. Um, let's see what we got. Okay. So I wanted to do some kind of left field Halloween programming with the kids, and we watched Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. And I'd never seen this. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'd never seen it. And uh, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I had the blue, and uh, man, it was amazing. I yeah, really, you know, that, really dug a- it. That's a childhood favorite of mine. I really liked that one quite a bit. I was curious, but I, but I, for some reason, I had thought you'd seen it before. No, 
uh, man, I really, when I was a kid, I loved that film. And we used to have this bed. It didn't have the wrought iron iron, uh, iron frame, but it had a, a wooden knobs on the end. And we it would screw on and off. off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd do that, pretend we were flying in the bed. Oh, that's cool. See, I was worried. It was two hours long. It's period of sorts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, I don't know, man. This might lose my kids. And it kind of starts out that way. I had to, you know, have to kind of talk them through. Oh, look, she's a witch. Look, she's practicing magic. You know what's in that package? That's a broom. What do you think she does in the broom? They're trying to keep them into it. But once it got going, it's really good, man. And it's really smart that it shifts to that half animated, half live action style when they travel to that, that area. And then I'll tell you something. God bless movie magic because my wife and I both were fascinated. Let me ask you on the air that set piece at the back end when she's got all the um, suits of armor and everything else marching and fighting against the Nazis and stuff like how did they do that? Because the work looked too articulate to be puppetry and it clearly wasn't CGI because of the time. Like, Do you know how that was done? I, I couldn't tell you for sure how it was done, but I was thinking about this because I was listening to Silva and Gold recently, and Alex was talking about, for those who don't know, Loaf, was talking about uh, how the specs for the, the Invisible Man were really great for their time, the mm-hmm. Universal Monsters Invisible Man. Yep. And uh, they would paint people the same color as the set, kind of similar to what your green screen type stuff is nowadays. I don't know how they did it. I remember as well as you, though, being very impressed, even as a kid, with that whole piece and the kind of chaos and craziness of it and wondering how they did it. I'm going to guess that they just did it shot by shot with hidden wires and and whatnot, uh, maybe full-size puppetry of some sort, like with the big sticks or something. I don't know, man. It's really (laughs) fluid, though. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I remember it vividly. Uh, I can I know exactly what you're talking about because I remember that film. I've seen that film dozens of times, and I remember it very vividly. And even then, I remember. I, I need to revisit it. I haven't watched it in years, but I want to revisit that. I mean, maybe I'll pick up that blue. It's a good one, man. It's a good-looking blue. Uh, Lansbury's great. David Tomlinson's outstanding in it. And yes. if if they ever do it, the yes. David Tomlinson story, they need Toby Jones to star as him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be good. Yeah. Yeah, but it was very cool. It'll make my like my year end first time watches list. I really really dug it. Um, yeah, William was like they were really into it, man. So and like I said, man, that movie is like forty years, forty plus years old. And for me, who watches a lot of films, and my wife, who's pretty savvy to be kind of completely confounded and under the spell of the film as far as the the effects, it's it's testament to that that thing we always talk about that elusive movie magic. So yeah, yeah, very yep. cool. Um, next, I did one that was kind of a. It was, I don't know, I wouldn't say bucket list, that's overstating it, but growing up in the VHS age, you know, watched a lot of films with my dad, and there was one he rented called Cameron's Closet, uh, and for some reason, oh, yeah. I don't know why, man, but me and my bro- my, my younger stepbrother, we got on this uh, thing where we were like, man, we're not watching that movie, it looks terrible, it's just so stupid, and all these years later, my dad's like, man, have you, have you, have you seen, like once every couple of years, he'd say, have you seen Cameron's Closet yet? And I'd be like, nope, no chance. And I finally was like, you know, this is ridiculous. I got to watch this film. And he's like, you got to watch it, father and son, blah blah blah. It's uh, it's okay. It's uh, it, the kids got some sort of you know telekinesis, and he summons some, this demon in his closet, and it's got some really insane kills. And it's got um, it's funny we just did Exorcist last week because this thing has a stunt that makes like the father carries out the window thing look almost tame, like it's insane. <laughs> 
but the film itself is pretty lumpy, but the kills are brutal. Um, it was okay. It was okay. Uh, did don't look down. Don't look now for the midnight ride. So you yeah. have to hear the uh, the show. Do you hear? I thought about that. Uh, then I had the very rare. Did, I'm I'm, I'm going to guess you did like it. No? I did like it. I did. I do find Rogue's work. Uh, I don't find his work easily accessible for me. Like it's, you know, it, it's one of those things that sometimes with an album, there's a few tracks that really jump out at you, and you, you just naturally dig. And then the more you listen to it, the more you like it. Some of the other tracks, it, I feel like his work's kind of like that for me in a lot of ways. Okay. Um, right. It is an, it is a fascinating film though, and it's a pretty sort of mysterious and got a lot going on. But I did definitely yeah. like it. I did definitely like it, and then a lot of we get to see uh, Sutherland ass. So yeah, that's always nice. Yeah. It's funny when I was looking the film up. It's I didn't realize at the time there's the, there's a pretty notorious uh, love scene between him and Christy, which yeah. has a lot of nudity. And when I'm googling the film, you know, autofill comes up on Chrome, and it's like, don't look now, full love scene is coming up as like the, un, like as the, uh, you know, in the Google autofill, like, man, this thing must be searched a lot. You call that Google autofill, me and you behind the scenes, we call that, that Sammy search. That Sammy search. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, man. That's right. Which we'll get to the Sammy search of the week <laughs> later on. Yeah. I might have to start, I might have to start that as a, as a little part of the show, the Sammy search of the week. Yeah, man. It's like the mega breaker MVT. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know that actress that was in that scene, man? She, you know, we all about it, about it. Um, there's uh, there, the big chain of theaters here is Cineplex, and they have this um, this subsidiary, I guess, or this spinoff of their company where they do uh, old movies once a month at the theaters. Like, you know, for a nominal fee, five bucks or something. So they had a double um, the Wednesday before Halloween. They had The Mummy, 1932, and The Wolfman, 1941 or 42. So I'd never seen either of them on the big screen. So I thought, man, this is going to be great. Two of the, both these films for six bucks, you know, sold. So I went. Uh, they were great on the big screen. I have to say, not having seen either one in some time, I think the mummy gets bagged on a lot. Like I actually preferred the mummy to the Wolfman. I know that's blasphemy to the Sammy, but I don't know. Yeah, maybe only, maybe only to me. I mean, just my love of Beowulf. But uh, maybe I should have said werewolf. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I agree with you though. I think the mummy's underrated. It, it's really well shot, and it's it's kind of for its time. It's it's really out there. Yeah. It's uh, uh-huh. it's very cool. Wolfman's great, but you can tell how much it advanced in the 10 years of filmmaking. Yeah. yeah. You really can. Like, you know, Mummy comes at the, the right after the, the silent era. So the dialogue's, you know, a bit expository in spots and very aware of what it's, you know, actually very conscious, whereas here's the Mummy, or the Wolfman, it feels much more natural. And yeah. I'll tell you, Chaney yeah. really missed, uh, really missed his calling as like a, a, a beefy heavy in noir films. Oh yeah, yeah. He would have been great in noir films, and he would have also been great in Eurocrime films. Like, oh yeah, yeah. He totally would have. Face. His face even got better because of. Uh, well, I hate to say this, but his face got even more kind of ragged and puffy because of alcohol abuse. But it looked even better. Like he had like that Cohen brother face. Oh totally, totally. Um, so then we did the two films of the show, and then I finished up with uh, a couple of really great watches. Um, I did. Uh, Black Butterfly, which is like a Taiwanese 
kind of a little bit girls with guns, a little bit heroic bloodshed. And this kind of came out of nowhere for me. Um, I threw it on yesterday and I was very pleasantly surprised. It's uh, it's very cool, man. It's got some amazing action. Some, you know, a dude gets like a concrete slab dropped on his back from like 50 feet up. Um, what's that? That's a sweet. Oh, man. Yeah, it's uh, that dude had to take the Robaxa set on a double dose the next day. He was wincing on screen, but it was it's a it's a good little film, man. It's very cool. Very cool. Um, and then, of course, the 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 screenshot uh, bonanza to end all screenshot bonanzas. I, I did a little film called Death Run to Istanbul last night. Which has one of the best titles we've heard in some time. Oh, man. And for some reason, I thought this was when I put it on, I couldn't recall what it was. And I didn't even remember what Black Butterfly was. So it was kind of like a roll the dice and and come up uh, you know, large on both fronts. Um, and this one I thought was going to be like a, like a Turkish, like a Euro crime kind of film. Mm-hmm. But it turned out to be nothing like that. It was, uh, <laughs> it's like an eighties, um, no early nineties, I should say, uh, martial arts school. Put they wanted to, they wanted to make a film, and it's it's got some you know allusion to heroin and gangsters, and you just gotta see the screenshots, man. This film's insane. It's uh, it's really something special, really something special. Um, and then I finished the week right before we recorded. I did Lucy, the uh, Scarlett Johansson jam with uh, with the misses. It was her choice. Um, it's funny that Scarlett did this and um, Under the Skin in the yeah. same year because they're complete opposites. Yeah. Well. Anyway. But I, God, I love Scarlett, man. I'm, I've often said I'm not the biggest fan of blondes, but. Oh, I love Scarlet. Yeah. I think she's dynamite. And, you know, it's got Choi Min-shik and um it's okay. It's 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 fun. It's fun enough, you know, but Yeah. I have some concerns with it when I see it. Uh, I'm not always the biggest. Well, I mean, I like a lot of like I find a lot of Luke Besson stuff entertaining. Uh, but I really haven't found anything he's done in quite some time to be amazing. I would agree with that. And this feels very Luc Besson. Like it feels very slick, kind of empty, ridiculous. Yeah. The science behind it's absurd. But then again, I mean, the science is ridiculous behind a lot of things that we. Yeah. 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 I can displace the science of it. Uh, I'm hoping I'll just get, you know, be entertained by it and not bored. It's got some interesting stuff, though. I think it's got some interesting ideas. Um, and, Sarah, you know, God bless Scarlett, man. She commits. Like, she's a, she's a, you know, I wouldn't say she's the best actress in the world, but I really dig how she'll make something like that within the sort of confines of sci-fi in a way. Sci-fi, mindless sort of sci-fi popkin, popkin, ooh. Uh, sci-fi popcorn <laughs> film like this, and then she'll make maybe the most cerebral sci-fi film of the year uh, in Under the Skin. Yeah. So, uh, you know, very cool. Um, but that's the week. Nice. Nice. Um, so we are going to take a short break. What do you want to talk about first? Um, um, let's talk about... Uh, let's talk about... Let's talk about sex. No, let's... Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think here. 
I don't know why. It's, let's just go ahead and, yeah, let's talk about the dance reality. All right. Sounds good. We're going to be back and uh, talk about Pamela Flores. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Tyler from the Macho Bullshit Movie Cast. And in the month of November, I will have a charity drive to raise funds for victims of domestic violence. So, what you need to do, I've tried to keep this about as simple as possible. You can donate to any uh, charity f- uh, for domestic violence. You can donate to any women's shelter. Uh, min- for a minimum of a $10 donation, uh, send your receipt or confirmation email whatever just so i could see your name and that you donated to my feedback email that's macho bullshit moviecast at yahoo.com and for that you'll get two exclusive downloads crossover episodes one where the fine gentleman at cult of muscle will join me and we'll talk about a couple films and another crossover episode with the lovely ladies of the feminine critique they will be joining me and talking about a couple films in addition i will be drawing three names out of the hat for prize packs uh first second and third uh, these prize packs will have DVDs, Blu-rays, miscellaneous other stuff. Uh, and if you know me, you can probably guess some of what that'll be. But uh, it, they should be quite nice, actually. Uh, definitely worth winning. And in addition to that, I will select another half dozen names. Another six out of the hat will be drawn to submit bonus episodes, half-hour-long episodes of film reviews that will be published then through my my Libsyn account. So, I would just encourage everyone to consider donating to this. Even if you're not interested in the prizes, it's, it's a worthy cause to give to. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see those donations coming in. talking about a film that's been um, something that we've really been excited to talk about, frankly. when I, I'll have to be honest. Of course, we're talking about The Dance of Reality, 2013, Alejandro 
Jodorowsky. Or Jodorowsky. Although I'm I'm considering this for release this year. As am I. Yeah, okay. Good. As am I, absolutely. Because I feel like, okay, it played Khan, but what else did it really do other than that? Like, there was no access yeah, to just, it. Yeah, this festival circuit stuff. And I know we've been waiting what seems like forever to see this thing. So We have. And I have to say, when I remember Neck went to see it at Khan. He's like, yeah, because, you know, he uh, he had his film there, which has ties to this, uh, of course, uh, with uh, Jodorowsky. And he said, guys, you know, he posted in the group. When you know Jodo's new film comes out, you know you got to see it. It's amazing. I didn't even know he was working on a new film, to be honest. When I'd heard about this, yeah, I was just I was stunned, pleasantly surprised. The trailer dropped, and I was like, "Man, this looks like Fellini or something." Yes, yeah. this, this really looks outstanding. You know, um, but um, let's uh, let's synopsize this. Let me see if this is too spoilery or not. Um. I think we could probably actually read this. Oh, see someone maybe involved with the production wrote it. So uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky was born in 1929 in Tokopia, a coastal town on the edge of the Chilean desert where this film was shot. It was there that Jodorowsky underwent an unhappy and alienated childhood as part of an uprooted family. Blending his personal history with metaphor, mythology, and poetry, the dance of reality reflects Jodorowsky's philosophy that reality is not objective, but rather a dance created by our own imaginations. So there you go. Um, do you want to lead on this? Do you want me to lead on it? What would you like? Uh, I can lead on it because I'm probably going to be driving when we do the other one. Cool. So I'll go with it, uh, talk a little bit about it. So this is uh, Jodorowsky's new film, a newest film. I thought that he said it would be his last film, but he does say on the disc that uh, he'll make films until he dies. So. Hopefully he'll get to make some more. I mean, he's getting up there in age, but he does seem very virile and very young at heart. So, so what is he, 86 when he made this or something? Yeah, I think so. That's he's, incredible. He's quite, yeah, he's quite up there, but uh, who knows? Jodorowsky might be, he might have the fountain of youth for all I know. He doesn't seem nearly that age. So. Oh, man. No, he seems like a guy who's about 20 years younger. Yeah. So this has uh, all three of his sons in it. Uh, his, his living uh, sons. Yeah, his living sons. Brontus, uh, ooh, I can't remember the other Adon name. Adon and Axel. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they're all in here uh, doing the work that their father, they love working with their dad, and uh, their dad definitely, uh, <laughs> he definitely <laughs> gives them all interesting roles. Yeah, he sure uh, does. I guess Adon probably has the most non-wacky kind of role, but in a way, I mean, what he does and what that character does and stuff, that still would be bizarre to shoot if I'm if I'm uh, the father of that person. So anyway, a Don, I should say, I've said it before, pretty good uh, musician in his own right. Adonowski is the name yeah. he goes by combination of his first and last name. Some of his music, and he actually composed the score for this film. Uh, mm -hmm. And some of his original music from one of his albums, uh, is it not Velador? Is it Velador? I think. No, maybe it's not. Anyway, it's got a peacock. It's kind of like him as a peacock on the front. Some of the music from that album's in this. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, I'll let you get into it here, Mole. We'll, we'll go into it. Yeah. So there's a lot of length of time between projects when you talk about Jodorowsky. I mean, probably the only other person you can compare it to who nowadays seems like he's, you know, like um, like he's Woody Allen all of a sudden is Terrence Malick. But, uh, yes. Yeah. But there is a lot of time between Jodorowsky projects. Probably we can assess that to, you know, his films would are not easy to finance, I would yes. say. Yes. I would say they that's absolutely unique. part of it. 
yeah, they're very unique. But he has big, big visions. So it's not it's really hard for a filmmaker like Jodorowsky to get money to make movies, I think, because his movies are really big. And yet, I mean, even if they're shot small or shot and to made to look, they still look big. And there just seems to be a lot of production value. I know his wife did the costumes for this. Yeah. I mean, this was definitely a big time family affair. I mean, they all got involved and they all worked together to to get this made. And it feels like the film of a, a young man in a lot of ways. It doesn't feel like this film from this 86-year-old man, except for perspective, obviously. Perspective, but, absolutely. Yeah, but his vision is there. I mean, everything that you if you either love or you hate about Alejandro Jodorowsky, you're going to get that in this film. There, There is a definite through line through most of his films. So if you're, you're, the, you're the guy that says, you know what, his films aren't for me, I can tell you right now this film's not going to be for you. But no. if if you enjoy his visuals and uh, his storytelling technique and everything, I think you will adore this thing. It's it is uh, a biography in his eyes of his life. Now, obviously, some of it, as time has gone past, life turns some of the things that happen to you into maybe a little myth. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, as you, you you can make things mythical as time goes by, like things you remember as a child. You probably remember them being a much bigger deal than they actually were, or uh, vice versa. But we'll kind of get into it a little bit. Uh, I think his father was his father Argentinian. Was, was that right? Um, I believe so, and I could or, be wrong. I, I'm just winging it as you as, said that. Yeah, his mother, I believe, was Russian. Yeah, Russian Jewish, I believe, or yeah, and, yeah, Russian Jewish, and I think his father was Argentinian, but I. I could be wrong about that, so I don't want to say I'm absolutely right about that. But it, 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 it's an interesting it's an interesting cultural mix. Well, so, it is, yeah. Yeah, they end up in Chile and uh, in this really small coastal town, Tocapilla, and um, this is the actual town that Alejandro Jodorowsky grew up in. And not only that, for the film, from what I understand, he had the production designer and his wife and everything to kind of make some of it look like it did when he was a child. So a lot of the stuff they kind of redid a little bit to kind of you know look like it did when he was a kid, and he's doing all this from memory. And so, I think when you look at a filmmaker like him, you couldn't have it any other way. He wouldn't have it any other way, and that's something that I think is really testament yeah. to him. Like he could have done it and shot it maybe in Spain or you know somewhere that um, yeah. like La Mancha or somewhere that maybe was small and you know could have maybe mashed it, but. When you get a filmmaker like him, it's it's clear what his intent is and 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 how much he respects the medium. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's just I'm gonna keep saying it throughout this review, but I find the the process of how he made this film, um, and you know, assuming the things that were involved in him making the film, endlessly fascinating from a cinematic standpoint and an emotional and a psychological standpoint because it's a man like we said at 86 who has perspective. Um, looking back at his life with a little bit of myth, sentiment, reality, you know, a lot of things. And it's just, it makes for, yeah. it makes for every scene in the film to be much richer than if this was just a fictional film. And even if it was just fiction by an anonymous director, it would be poignant and emotionally rich. But when you add in a man at his point in his life making this and the passion he makes it with and that it's about his life, it makes it that much richer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you get to see a lot of what 
uh, Jodorowsky's all about. If, if this is his childhood, and Tokopia is um, not only a coastal town, but it's also a mining area. And mining's a pretty big deal in Chile. I mean, I think, what was it, like four or five years ago they had that accident? Yeah, that's right. Uh, where those miners were, were, yeah, so a lot of amputations, a lot of lost limbs, a lot of dynamite accidents when uh, Alejandro was growing up. So you get a, definitely a lot of amputees uh, and maimed people in here. Uh, there's a, a circus in town. Uh, I think his father did a little bit of like maybe vaudeville or sideshow stuff. He was very much a his father was very much a macho, very macho character, um, which Alejandro really kind of re- really shows in this film how macho. I mean, this might be the most pressing macho father figure I think I've ever seen in a movie. I mean, if there is something that involves machismo. <laughs> This this father that brought displays is uh, certainly one of the most punishing of uh, many fathers I've seen on on camera. I mean, I've seen some disciplinary fathers and uh, things, but man, he really takes it up a notch. Now, how much of that's real? I mean, Alejandro says it's completely real. I talk about him like I know him. You know, hey, I, you know Alejandro, yeah. but uh, he does say that his father was just this really, you know, hard, yeah. hard man, you know? So maybe it, it's hard for me to believe because of being a father myself, I would never be that hard on my son. Mm-hmm. But again, this is a different time, a different place, a very scary time in a lot of people's lives and I don't know. You know, it probably is. It's at least how he remembers it. So all that matters is that's reality to him. So yeah, and I is think there, is there a lag? I'm concerned there's a lag. There is a little bit, not much. Yep. Um, I think that what's really interesting too about this film is having seen this and this described as you know very much a biography of his life is connecting the dots with the other films that he's made like El Topo and Santa Sangre uh, specifically and how they tie in and how we now realize how much, how personal those films are to his life. I mean, we already knew about Santa Sangre a little bit, but to see Santa Sangre and then even El Topo, the father son relationship in that and how it mirrors the father son relationship in this in a lot of ways is is really, really fascinating to see that he was commenting on the dynamic between him and his father at that at, at that point in his life without yeah. any of us really realizing that he was drawing from that well for those characters. Right, right. Make sure there's no lag here. Can you hear me? Right away, man. Okay, good. The uh, Yeah, there's, there's some things that I noticed. I've noticed in a lot of Jaworski's films... Uh, not that he mistreats dogs, but he's used dog carcasses and things like that. I noticed in this film, his father compared him to a dog, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting because he's used kind of dog imagery throughout his films. Yeah, he uh, has. Animal imagery throughout his films and, you know, animals in, yeah, animals in pain or animals in suffering. And, and that's interesting. And, of course, the clowns and, and that type of stuff, that's 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 easy to recognize. Um that he gets, you know, I think him and Fellini definitely are two of the most preoccupied filmmakers, I think, of all time when it comes to clowns and and uh, that type of imagery. I mean, oh, they really, nobody does it quite well, like those two guys, right? Well, the fixations they have, and especially with this film, 
I've not made any secret of my love of Fellini because I feel like it speaks to me personally, the sentimentality of thinking one's childhood and a lot of their fixations. And this between, again, we've reviewed now, this is the third third film, I think, of Jodorowsky's um, we've covered. But between Santa Sangre and this, which are the two most sort of Jodorowsky of his films uh, in the most recent films he's done, because I haven't seen Tusk or Rainbow Thief, so I can't really comment on them. And I think they were, were more for hire kind of or or got bungled in the handling of, uh, you know, so they don't really feel like maybe personal projects from what I've heard. But, um, yeah, to where was I even going with this now? But, oh, yeah, the circus aspect, the, you know, when we see the animals and the animals are very present in this, you have to wonder how much of that is him – you know, us being able to read between the lines that the animals symbolize, you know, children and the, mis- the, the sort of poor treatment of children and, as always, people on the fringes of society and the marginalized and the the impoverished and how, you know, a lot of times the animals could represent the innocence being brutalized by those in power and control, especially growing up right. in Chile when he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So our story kind of opens with this child who's kind of interested and with his dad and they kind of go to this very Fellini-esque kind of opening with these, uh, these clowns. Oh yeah. Kind of getting introduced to to the, uh, the father figure and a young Alejandrito. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, we see the Alejandro, the, the, the young Alejandro has this magnificent mane of hair, this kind of very strange. Oh yeah orangish blonde hair kind of like a strawberry blonde almost type hair we eventually get an explanation for this because we meet alejandrito's mother now what we know or what i know about jodorowsky's mom mother is that uh she was of russian you know russian jewish or russian descent and she always wanted to be an opera singer uh, she always sang around the house, and and I know that Jodorowsky talked about in the past how he always remembered that. That that's one of his most vivid memories is not of what she, you know, so much looked like, even though he remembered that quite vividly too, which we'll get into. But uh, that she, you know, would sing all the time, and so he decides in this movie to give Pamela Flores, who's a an accomplished, I don't know what that's called, an aria, or I don't know what that is. I'm not an opera guy, but to give her the role of his mom and she's a big breasted woman. His mom was a big breasted woman and he makes it a point to focus on the breast quite a bit, which is also very Fellini-esque. We know. Very right. And you know, Russ Meyer and Fellini are giving, <laughs> giving Jodorowsky daps from somewhere. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so it's, it's a very bizarre premise to have this character that's constantly singing an opera. And Will and I were talking before we started recording this, review that it's almost obnoxious and it really kind of gets on your nerves for a while uh eventually it kind of all starts to make sense but it is a bizarre choice i like the choice because it's so unique um but it's it is a little trying at times when you just wish she would talk (laughs) it i i do feel like there aren't a lot of missteps in the film and like you'd you and i said off the air the big misstep for me, and it doesn't take away from the film or the character. So I think the character is, and I think she does as great a job with the decision to have her sing very operatically all of her lines. 
Yeah, she's uh, great in the movie. Yeah, Pamela Flores is. Oh, is she? Ever, is she ever? Yeah. But no, she she really is, and I just feel like I wish there had been scenes where it it feels a little too gimmick. Not gimmick, because I think he's certainly above gimmicks. But yeah. I I just wish he had have had her speak in a normal voice. Yeah. More. I wish. I, I mean, I was fine with the opera singing. I just wish he would have mixed it up. Agreed. Uh, I just wish you know maybe a little bit of here and there. It's very off putting at first uh, when you first see her. She. Oh, it really is. Was, when I did the Alejandro. Oh man! You know that's uh that's the first thing she says, and she says it across the way. And of course, if you're a male watching this movie, she comes on the screen and she says Alejandrito, and I'm not even paying attention to that because her breasts are right in my face. And of course, you know, you know, there's a whole lot of Jodorowsky talking about you know breasts and you know all this kind of the, you know the focus of life, and you can get into all that, but it really comes down to the fact that his mom was a big-breasted woman, and that's what he remembers. One of the things physically he remembers of her vividly. Not in a perverse way, but in a way that you do remember something about your parents, you know. Uh, I know, I remember Angelica Houston took some heat recently in her autobiography because her dad, Walter Houston, would uh, walk around their house naked a lot. Yeah. And and uh, this is before, this is a time when you could actually walk around naked in front of your kids without chances of going to jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her dad evidently had a large penis, a very large penis. And she talked about that in the book, and people thought it was perverse. But <laughs> I think if, you, if you're if you growing up and you have somebody in your family nude, uh, you're going to remember certain things about that. It's going to be in your brain for life. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm sorry, but it is. You know, <laughs> It's just the way it is. Yeah. You, know, I, you walk in on your parents having sex or something like that. These are all, maybe not, they don't happen to everybody, but they certainly happen to quite a few of us. And most of us have a memory like that burned into our brain. Oh, yeah. Something... Our first kind of realization of sex kind of comes from our parents. It's true. And uh, maybe some of our first, at least for me as a male, some of the first realizations I had of the female body obviously come from my mo- from my mother. Yep. And uh, we, Alejandro really delves into that in this film. He really delves into that into a scene which I think will make some people uncomfortable. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's one of the scenes that Pamela Flores is in that's going to make people uncomfortable. I, I almost feel like we shouldn't talk about the other scene, but we got to. I mean, <clears throat> we haven't had a golden shower on the show in quite some time. We have not. Since did we <laughs> it's been ever, a while. Did, Yeah, did we review the Paperboy for the show or no? No, we didn't. No, we didn't, but we did talk about the golden shower. <laughs> yes. This makes that golden shower, though, look like uh, child's play. It does. <clears throat> This is the most realistic golden shower that I've seen outside of a porn movie. I have this to think is, it's a real golden shower. It's Jodorowsky. Yeah. How can it not be a real golden shower? This is essentially golden shower porn. Yeah. It is. I mean, with an artistic slant, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's pure pornography. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but what I like about Jodorowsky is he blurs those lines because he's, you know, a firm belief that, you know, Sex is a human thing. It's it's a natural yeah. part of our lives. Uh, you know, pissing on somebody's face, maybe that's a natural part of his life, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I wonder I wonder in some capacity where that memory comes from. Surely, well, I'm not going to say surely, but I would think that that maybe didn't happen and maybe he interpreted something else that happened that his mother and father did as, that 
Well, perception is reality, right? And correct, correct. being the philosopher that he is, there could be subtext and certainly a yeah. lot of meaning to some of the things we see that goes beyond surface uh, assessment. Yeah, maybe his mom was a squirter before they knew what squirters were. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I know that's a crass conversation, but I, I can't figure out. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know what that means. Is he, is, is Brontus, oh, Brontus, is Alejandro's father being cured of a disease from the piss of his wife? Is that a baptism of some type of holy fluid? Is that. Well, you could look at it. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, I'm I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know what that means. I, I, I'm been trying to process it since it happened. I don't think it's there for shock, at least not no. totally, although we can say that Jodorowsky's never kind of shied away from making audiences, you know, shocking them a little bit, and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no. You know, shock is good in cinema, and he's a transgressive filmmaker, and <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's something organic being said there, because I feel like his mother really embodies and inhabits very much motherhood um yeah and yeah. and all and, and like i think you bring up a great point because motherhood and all that means to a boy and a man because uh the flores uh this sorry the character that flores plays feels very or- earthy organic she is a rubenesque in some ways very busty big hips she's you know a voluptuous woman um yeah there's a classic a, classic beauty right classic and uh, I think that you could look at, yeah, I mean, because there's another interesting scene where she's completely nude later on that at first I thought, man, this is this is bizarre. But by yeah, where's the, this, where's this going to go, right? Where, yeah, where's this going to go? involves some <laughs> black paint. But I have to say, by the end of the scene, I found it to be beautiful and tender. With this yeah, sort of the final reveal of what he's his his reveal as to her intent in that moment, yes, and what it did yes. for him, I, yes. and that to me encapsulates motherhood. I think this is a woman who used her her feminine her physicality as far as being a feminine um, to nurture and to heal and to answer a lot of questions. Whether it was him as an observer. Uh, to what his mother and father were doing or was it whether it was her actively using her body to help heal things or like I said with the black paint thing which yeah there's a lot there's a lot as always with this one there's a lot to process yeah that's true the the black paint thing is interesting it's at first you're thinking to yourself okay she just put what amounts to shoe polish or something all over her son yeah completely covers him yeah, he completely covers him. He looks like one of those old school like racial jockey statues that yeah. you'd see in yards back in the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really, of course, you know, when you take a, a person that's all white and you paint them completely black, it gives you this really bizarre appearance on, on film. Um, almost kind of creepy, really, in a way. But then she, you know, she she's a prince. She pretends she's a princess. And she needs to be saved, and she decides to do this by stripping naked, which you can take any number of ways. Yes. Uh, at first, you're thinking, 
okay, she's really close with her son. Yeah. And then, it's, and then, it, then you're thinking, okay, well, she's taking off these layers of humanity because she wants him to see that we're, you know, these, these things that we cover up because she wants him to see that the naked body, you know, society makes us look away or look at the naked body, right? I mean, everybody's naked underneath. That's right. So, and Jodorowsky's never shied away from nudity, nor has his children. I mean, nudity's not really... He doesn't ain't make no a thing. Deal. Yeah, it ain't no thing for the, the Jodorowsky clan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think Brontus has been nude and everything he's done for him. I think every film he's been in, he's whipped out his cock. <laughs> yes, he, he pretty much has. There's a great scene here where he pisses on a radio. I love it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's not the only time we see his cock in the film. <laughs> no. But she's tearing off her, you know, she'll tear off her clothes like in a passionate way. She just takes her top or her nightgown off. And you think, what's going to go on? Now, I will admit that if my wife would have walked in and there would have been this kid rubbing black paint on a naked grown woman, she probably would have been perplexed as to what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah. Because it is, well, in today's society, it is a bit of a shocking image. But I think what gets lost sometimes in what the Fellinis and the Jodorowskis do and stuff is there's also innocence in sexuality. Sexuality doesn't always have to be deviant behavior. It can also be wonderful and beautiful. And there's nothing going on here outside of a young boy and his mother chasing away the monsters in the closet. That's right. It just so happens that they're doing it for our eyes, and she's nude. Yes. So is it bizarre? Sure. But it's also Jodorowsky, so it, it kind of seems like it makes sense in a way that he would do that. And it's actually, like you said, it's really touching. Because what we haven't talked about is Jodorowsky himself shows up in this film from time to time, kind of caressing his uh, his young self. Almost like a guiding angel. Yeah, yeah. Kind of looking back on his life. And it's it's a very interesting way to use that fourth wall, that breaking of the fourth wall type mentality, because he's telling the audience, you know, this is what I remember, this is how things go, and this is, you know, just basically giving his philosophies on reality and and childhood and all these things, sexuality, philosophies, religion, you name it. And uh, it's really kind of touching when he comes on screen in that scene because you really do sense, and from what I understand from interviews that I've read of him and seen, you know, his father was the tyrant, but his mother was the lover. And yep. from what I I understand Jodorowsky, he can be a tyrant, but he can also be the sweetest man on the face of the earth. That's right. So he definitely has his father and his mother in him. And um, I found that scene As very we touching. all do. Yes. I found that scene very touching in retrospect. We'll not, we'll not lie in saying that the scene is, is it's not turn on in a sexual way, but I, I mean, Pamela Flores naked is a sight to behold. She so, sure is. She's dynamite. So, it, I'm not going to lie to you that that was really nice. There's another scene where she walks around nude, and they're kind of talking about the not being seen. Hey, mother, hey, mom, how did you learn how to be invisible? And they kind of get into the thing where people only see you when they want to see you. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gets into the stuff we talked about when we did Three Iron and some other films where... 
you know, people's perceptions of what they see and what they don't see. They, you know, we drive, me and you both live in, well, I don't live in as big a city as you do, but we, we live in popular, very populated areas. And yep. I'm sure we ride past homeless people or people that are not as well off as we are. And you would argue that because we ride past them, I mean, we have to, but we ride past them sometimes that we uh, don't see them anymore. We don't pay attention to them. We kind of eventually become blind to, um, uh, all of that type of stuff. And yeah, there's some of that stuff I think going on as well, because, you know, at one point the amputees, you feel like they're not being paid attention to, you know, there's, <laughs> there's this group of amputees just sitting at a, what looks like a, like a cafe. And, uh, man, some of these guys are really amputated and we're talking arms and legs. Some of these guys just, uh, uh, they look like uh, that one guy that was in Freaks. Yep, that's right. So there's some seriously maimed individuals here, and uh, you feel like you know they're not being paid attention to. And that's also a bizarre scene, too, when the young Alejandrito gives that one amputee his ice cream and is scratching his back and hugging him. It's very – it's interesting that Alejandro has this very loving nature in him that comes out. But some of these things that if people would try to do it nowadays – let's be honest, Will – if you're with your son at the store and some guy comes and sits down with arms or without and your son starts scratching his back and hugging him and giving him his ice cream, you probably will react like the his father did. Um, not quite as extreme, but probably not far yeah. behind. And I feel like that was one of the early moments when I felt like Alejandro's really lamenting the hardening of himself uh, through yeah. – his father and we begin to paint a picture of the father's childhood because of his actions towards his own son and how yeah. that cycle of kind of cruelty and brutality. And I think part of this comes from his child and also part of it comes from the father and the father's arc in this is really fascinating to me because this could have focused on the young boy throughout, but it veers off and it becomes the father's story for some time. I think to know the son's story, you need to know the father's story. Yes. Um, and he does a good job of fleshing things out later on in the film. Um, and also, there's several instances where, because of societal... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Because of, 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 of the actions of society, treating them a certain way because they're Jewish, um, the father doesn't feel like there's a margin for error. And he has to be alpha everything in order to be accepted. Yeah. And I think that also is part of the reason that Alejandro revels in being outside of the accepted because he saw the misery it brought his father. Yeah. So counterculture, yeah. which is about embracing and loving different things, worked for him because it was the opposite of what made his father miserable and drove his father to be what he was. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the it is interesting. You know, another filmmaker I was thinking about, Jodorowsky, compared to, although he's a much more warmer filmmaker than this filmmaker, but it's uh, uh, Valerian Boracek. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who, also, who also deals a lot with sexuality and kind of our societal hang-ups with sexuality. He goes into darker places, maybe maybe darker to some. I mean, some people might be fine with it but he certainly touches on the taboo quite a bit right and i think you know jarvarski's not scared to touch on the taboo as well 
even though we've talked about it in such a serious way, and I'll pass it off to you here in a second, this film is also pretty funny in spots. I got to admit, it is. There's some pretty funny stuff in this movie. Uh, some very silly faces Prontus makes. Uh, oh man, Prontus is really good in this film. Oh yeah, he really is. He really is. In fact, and, everyone's uh, really good. Yeah, there's not a bad actor in the movie. Even the little boy is very good. The boy is fantastic. Yeah. And the uh, the, uh, the scene with Brontus where he's running with the horse, I love that because you kind of see him kind of reattaching himself. And, of course, then again, it gets into that Jodorowsky thing with an animal again. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I love that moment of innocence where the father is kind of not hung up on any of the, like, the other things that he gets hung up on without giving anything in the story away. I mean, this film is, it's pretty fantastic. I, I was really excited to see what John Rusky would do with CG. He only uses it a little bit, but it's really cool when he does use it, uh, which is nice. He uses it for a really cool tidal wave and beach sequence, which I really liked. Yeah. Um, it's nice to see him, you know, work in this, I mean, he's shooting a period piece in a lot of ways, but it's almost like a fantasy piece in some ways, too. But it's really nice to just see his aesthetic come come all the way to the modern era now with filmmaking and how I think Zeke, on the when I posted on uh, my Facebook page, I watched this, that how some filmmakers, you wait all this time for them to finally make another film, and you almost feel like it's a letdown. Like every time... Brian De Palma puts a movie out. I keep hoping he'll recapture the Brian De Palma magic. Or Argento or John Carpenter yeah. or... Any of these guys, right. But Jodorowsky's one of the few guys who we can say, along with Malick and... and Altman and, and Bergman. And Altman and Bergman. Kubrick. Yeah, some of these guys. Even, even, well, Kurosawa might be pushing a little bit. Some of his back... Well, some of his back and stuff's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, some of his stuff's pretty good. But you see this this growth of a filmmaker that that stuck around and i'm really impressed with the fact that you know after all these years that we get another alejandro jodorowsky film and it's still as visually uh delightful and deep and we can talk about it for hours and hours and hours and i mean the images in the film are just amazing and I, I really just don't I don't have words to describe them. They come from a man's mind that I, I, you know, it just doesn't come from any, you know, mind that I could think of. Now we can get into the torture scene a little bit. I got to say that torture scene is pretty brutal. Yes. No doubt. It's not porn, but in a way it kind of, I mean, I guess you could argue it is. It's not, let's say it's not bloody, but it's intense. It's punishing. Man. It's intense. Yeah. It's intense and punishing. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Like uh, all things, Jodorowsky, it's, you know, pretty stunning. And then, of course, the closing of the film. I'm not going to get into what happens, but it's this really great kind of bookend to the story and kind of Jodorowsky commenting on his life and, you know, where he goes from here. And if this is his last film, then that last image is pretty haunting. And uh, I think he knows that. I mean, he's a smart enough man to know what he's doing and uh, to leave us those type of images pretty great but i'll go ahead and pass it off to you yeah you know you're right i just there's so much i think being said so much we can take away from this and i'll we could spend hours on this and i won't um because it's already one o'clock in the morning and we both have to get up early but um 
I think that to see someone, you know, Jodorowsky is one of my, you know, as we get older, I think I don't, I don't feel like, like I'm too starstruck. There's some people I would be kind of nervous to talk to in kind of an in awe of. And I feel like Jodorowsky is one of those people. Yeah. I, I feel like he's a hero. And, you know, yeah. he's someone that I feel just profoundly deep um, in a number of ways. All the disciplines he's engaged in, you know, through philosophy and different um, artistic mediums and so many things. And I think we even mentioned this before, like, how has he found the time to do so many fascinating things in his life? Um, yeah. It's just... Well, he's an inspiration He's an inspiration in a lot of ways because he, he doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't give up. He just, I mean, yeah, he hasn't made 20 films, but he's been creative his whole life, well into his 80s and... Yeah, that should be that should be championed because uh, most of us, by the time we're thirty five, forty five years stagnant. old, stagnant. Yeah, we've uh, we've gotten into the rat race. We've gotten into the grind. We've, you know, there's just so many things. I mean, it's noble if you're taking care of a family and everything you have to do. That's a noble thing to do. Not everybody can afford to be Alejandro Jodorowsky, but it is pretty great that we do have an Alejandro Jodorowsky in this world. We have a dreamer, poet. I mean, those things sound trite to some, but I really feel like that stuff holds true with him. You know, an artist, a dreamer, a poet, you know, philosopher, someone that, yeah, it just, and to see him as a scared boy and have this perspective and to see how marginalized and isolated he felt, I think it, we could begin to be able to piece together, not just a man, you know, who, who has a fascination with counterculture, but the, like the the seed being planted of why counterculture was important to him. Like I had said earlier, um, just, yeah, you know, Brontus. And again, that's some heavy shit. That's a ripple that, that circle of son playing father's father and the direction that father's giving son and playing father's father and how much he's calling that in with his own father and how much Alejandro is directing him to, be his father there's there's really a lot of deep stuff going on there um early on there's a scene with some coins and i thought oh this film might look cheap i was a bit worried about that you know yeah. i was yeah. like man yeah, that yeah, looks yeah. a little bit cheap to me but i'm happy to say that however much the budget was for this film i'm going to try to look here as we're we're um budget was three million wow wow yeah. um it looks much better than that. Um, I, I do think that, you know, the same with the amputees you talked about, I think there, it's a really, as with a lot of his films, there's stuff that's shocking, but there's also a lot of things that are really beautiful and tender and I think, and poignant. I think the scene with the amputee, when the you know, no arms comes up and a young Alejandro gives him his ice cream and he says what he says. And the man with no arms and like his own, or no arms says, no one has touched me you know, in so long. And yeah. I think just there's a power to that, the way he looks at the base needs of people. Yeah, because, right, right, because human beings, you know, we crave to be touched. Of course. I mean, that's, that's not, I mean, there's a reason why I hug everybody when I see them. If you've ever yeah. met me, then you're going to, I'm going to hug you because I do believe that human contact is the best way to know people i believe a handshake's great that's fine but if i call you friend i'm gonna hug you you're gonna bring it in man 
Yeah, I'm going to bring it Absolutely. in there, buddy. Absolutely. Because, you know, I do believe the human contact, I mean, it's personal belief, but yeah. I do believe the human contact is how you get to know somebody. Uh, and I can always kind of tell when some people aren't huggers. You can kind of tell, you know, when you hug them and people aren't huggers and the people who are. But, and I, I'm fine with it. I understand that. I do. I understand If people don't want to be hugged, that's cool. I mean, I, I can understand that. But I do believe that human contact, it's one of the, one of the great things about being a human being is that we have that sensation of touch and we know what we're doing when we do it. Um, obviously today's culture, this is where I get into this because I mean, this film, it, it made me think a lot about today's culture and stuff. You just don't, there's a lot of things you don't do with strangers anymore. You don't, you don't, uh, shake their hands. You don't pick them up. You don't, uh, there's a lot of things you just don't do with strangers. Now, I mean, you might help them if they fall, but if they're sitting there, you're not going to pick them up and give them a hug. There's just a lot of things where the base human nature of our beings has been replaced. And I think for Alejandro, it's, it's never went away. I think he strikes me as a guy who, if he gets to know you, he would hug you like immediately. <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. And I, I feel like, um, what does he say? There's, there's a lot of great quotes in this, but... Um, and this, I think, <clears throat> is the essence of him. Uh, and this is something that I, I believe in. And we've seen this in films, even in The Road, towards the back end, uh, with Viggo Mortensen and Cody Smith-McPhee, when someone tries to rob them. And I did the, yeah. he does the same thing that I would do. I'd leave the guy yeah. for dead. However, the humanity is shown through the sun, in that scene, you can't leave him like that. And I think that's important, you know, for some of us to have that humanity because the law of the lines that Rusky says is bear the painful burden of the years, but in the heart, keep the child. Yeah. And I think that's, yep. that's really a beautiful, um, line, a mantra. Um, I quite like that. I, uh, I believe, I mean, when I saw that, I thought of that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we do this show for me is the heart of the child. Yes. I mean, we're talking about movies. There's so much more in the world to talk about. Of course. But we're talking about something we loved as growing up. We're talking about something that we have that childhood passion for mm -hmm. that adult passion that's came into it now. Mm -hmm. But that child, child heart, that, that children's heart, that nature that a child has, uh, if you lose that, it's sad. I'm not saying that, you know, everybody can have that. Everybody can keep that. I know at times in my life I've lost it and I'm sure you have as well. I mean, life Absolutely. can be hard, yeah. but if you get to a point in your life where you can keep that, where you can keep that, uh, that, that happiness inside in a way, that innocence, that's pretty special. I mean, uh, and Jodorowsky definitely, he, he personifies that to me. He really does. Cause watching him talk, I just, I see this man that's on fire all the time. Look at the, you, you bring up, but you, you describe it perfectly to be on fire, that fire of the soul. Yeah. Like we see in the, in, in next brilliant, uh, Jodorowsky's Dune documentary, the fire, the passion, it's still burning hot, still burning strong. Um, absolutely. And when you lose that, that, that sparkle a little bit, it's, uh, it's, sad. what else do you, yeah, what, what else have? do you have after that? You know, I'm not saying that you can't, you know, still care for the ones you love and all that stuff. But if you lose that spark, I don't really know what else you have at that point. Yep. 
No, for sure. Um, I like, you know, he's always had a heightened sense of, of um, aesthetics and, and what have you. And I feel like it that lends itself very well in this film because as a child, everything seems a little bit amped up and more fantastical. So I, I think it works really well in this. Um, I think that yeah, the stuff with father and son, of course, uh, is tough to see early on um, how uh, Brontus playing his uh, playing his father's father uh, says things like, "If you do as I ask, you'll win my adoration and or ad- my admiration," yeah. and just wanting his father's attention and affection at any cost. Even if it means the pain he has to endure physically or emotionally, mm-hmm. you know it's uh, it's really something. Um, we see a lot of out of either Jodorowsky's or Jodorowsky's father's proclivities on display. Whether it's you know the stalking and foot fetish, panty sniffing, <laughs> we get <laughs> we get a lot of stuff on display here, a lot yeah. of stuff. And I feel like he's the kind of guy that he could talk to his kids. Yeah, you know. Sniffing a woman's panties is wonderful. It's her life essence, and yeah. know, he seems like the yeah. kind of dad that would have no qualms talking about that shit. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, I have no doubt whatsoever that Alejandro Jaworski saw his dad sniffing panties. <laughs> he must have, and maybe he does, and maybe that's you know something that's been passed down. Who knows? Again, that, that, that's been that's been in our society that's turned into a perversion. Yes, and. I have never understood why is that a perversion? There's nothing perverted to me. I mean, yeah, I'm just yeah. talking about me. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. Know, you. We're saying some good ourselves here on, on air, there, by Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a closet panty sniffer. You leave your panties laying around. I don't care if you're Dr. Zom. I'm going to sniff those fuckers. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, no, but I mean, I don't know when in our society it became. You know, to to caress a woman's leg, to look at stockings, yeah. to sniff panties, to cold panties, or any of those things, or shoes. You wear them on your head. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. fetish thing it, it it made it for some reason it made it taboo. Yeah. Really, I can't think of a more innocent sexual uh, proclamation. Yeah, I can't think of a more sexual fetish or more innocent sexual fetish than sniffing a pair of panties. Yeah, it's I, mean, a, I think it's a moment of discovery, right? Yeah. yeah. Who are you hurting sniffing those panties? If anything, depending on what that person ate or how clean they are, you're the only thing you're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> I can't believe Jodorowsky brought us to this confessional. We're <laughs> 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 revealing a lot about ourselves through this film. Man. <laughs> yeah, this will be the last Jodorowsky we ever cover. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. No kidding. I can't do Holy, I can't do holy Mountain with you, man, because I don't know where I might go. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, I'm doing all this. I'm doing all this while driving a car. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I love the moment with the red shoes. Oh and, yeah, and that moment turns quick because you know how an object can move someone to the point it does. But then the irony of that object and objectification becoming the death of one. Yeah. So I, I like that. Um, I think the. The memory recall that Jodorowsky has about it, the quote unquote beating the bishop, he he handles that the right way, thankfully, and kind of in a rather ingenious way. Yeah. Again, you know, if this film was made in America, though, they would cen- they would censor that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They would censor that scene. Even having children doing that 
even though there's nothing except for a rude gesture, there is nothing being seen there in America that would get you. Oh man, you, you imagine how much heat you would catch for that. Catch a lot of heat, man. A lot of heat. Um, it's, pretty good- com- it's pretty common for those. I mean, for most of the men that listen to the show, uh, I'm sure you know masturbation is a rite of passage. So I'm sure you came across it naturally. Yeah. But I was actually kind of, I mean, not to confess too much again, but I mean, <laughs> my my friends were the ones that told me about it. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't do it with them. No circle yeah. jerks there, boy. Yeah, I've never until, engaged in a circle jerk either, man. Yeah, I waited till Horror Hound to do the circle jerk. But <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah. The, uh, but I did go home and be like, what are these guys talking about? You know, what are these yeah. guys talking about? What is this, you know... <laughs> beating the bishop type thing what is this flogging the <laughs> flogging the old one-eyed sailor there yeah no kidding and then when i of course when i discovered it like all like all human beings do uh well i mean talk about that's it's one it's one of the purest life-changing moments <laughs> is, it ever, life. is it ever <laughs> you, Nobody can tell me that it's not. Nobody can tell me that that isn't one of the moments in your life you remember the most vividly. I remember the first time, man. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And so does my face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Amazing, man. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> um, I, uh,. Oh, there's a great moment. Speaking of that, there's a great moment with a starfish in this. Oh yeah, I mean, I tell you what, there's some horrific imagery in here. That that shit, man, that starfish freaked me out. Yeah. And that fucking did. that that burn victim, fuck. Man, that was intense. There was some full GS shit going on there. There really was. There really was. Or like um, or like Luigi Cozzi kind of gloopy. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, like almost, almost, almost meatball head, like almost a little Lindsay going on. Yeah, there. yeah, for sure. Uh, another really great moment, and I think it looks at the abs- and I think I think he's always a filmmaker who has an absurdist. Uh, he's very much an absurdist. And there's a, a moment when Brontus has a change of heart about things, and I think again, I love that he fleshes him out uh, because there's a moment where he decides he's going to do something, and he takes his donkeys into town to give these people this water. Yeah, and there's just a mob of them, and they're, they're you know marginalized, dirt poor, um, and they get into a frenzy because these donkeys are going to stab them, and they start to like tear the flesh, and they're going to eat it, and he's he's kind of furious and just baffled, and he says, "How will I bring you water? How will I bring water now tomorrow?" And I says, "Tomorrow, we're hungry today." Yeah, and just the absurdity and the you know life and just a really great moment. Um, we should say, I think, unlike a lot of his films, I don't think there's any, well, maybe not unlike, I shouldn't say that, but I, I know he hasn't always been, uh, let's say, a very, a PETA, very PETA-friendly filmmaker in some ways. I suspect a lot more of it this time was, yeah, it just, it was all yeah, smoke yeah. and mirrors. Yeah, yeah, the donkey scene is, is a little brutal, um, bit, yeah. um but... I mean, uh, this is what Alejandro remembers. He remembers the miners coming down from the mountain and being desperate. Yeah, oh, big time. uh, I think if you're desperate, you eat animals that you don't normally eat. i got to be honest with you. Uh, I'm never going to eat a donkey steak. No, no, I I wouldn't either. (laughs) 
Uh, but yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've eaten a few asses in my day, but no donkey. Yeah, same much. here, man. Hey, go rim same. shot. Oh, double yeah. double joke. Speaking of the starfish deer bite. Yeah. <laughs> starfish on the Whoa. face deer bite. <laughs> a triple joke there. We've all been on that one. <laughs> yeah. We've all been there, man. But just remember, though, you got to keep it clean because the brown eye will give you the pink eye. Oh, yeah, it will. will. <laughs> um, <laughs> not that I know from experience. Not that I will, know. Yeah. Keep that, you know, keep some big wipes in my, in my uh, pockets at all times. <laughs> keep that shit moist and clean. Um, yeah. I like... Uh, Jesus. Just think uh, of think of the archive of knowledge we're leaving for our children uh, right now. This is yeah, no kidding. I th- <laughs> think sometimes my kids are gonna listen to this one. They're gonna know I was into panty sniffing and golden showers and dogs. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I uh, I love the masks that he puts on all the sort of anonymous faces in the audiences or in the like oh, in yeah. the crowds. Oh yeah. Nice little touch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a statement being made there because, you know, in all of our lives, you know, the, the people we're focusing on, that's where the most story takes place. And there's people around us all the time. We are not, we aren't paying any attention to that anonymity of people all around us and stuff. And I like that too. I like that there's these, uh, these, these well, actually kind of freaky masks. Yeah. <laughs> these kind yeah. of almost look like coconut shell mask or something. They do, man. Uh, a lot of anthropomorphic animals, which has always been a fixation of his. Yep. And I love the line, and I feel like John Waters is another kindred spirit to him um, when he says, "I," which, you know, he says, I don't want to be in a world of dressed up dogs. Yeah. I yeah. love that line. Um, uh, what else do we got here? Do, 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 do. Lizards, trannies, poor kids. Um, uh, do, 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 do. Oh, I'll tell you, there's a scene near the back end of this when we're on Brontus's, uh, when we're on uh, Jamie, or Jame, I, I can't remember how the pronunciation was in Spanish, when we're on uh, Alejandro's father's journey. Really beautiful scene towards the back end when he wakes up from, you know, this sort of coma of sorts. And there's this woman who's, you know, physically disabled, and she's got all these dogs. And that scene with her and the, the letter was a really beautiful moment. Yeah, really yeah I like that moment Really, really great. And I think he, the way he always looked at sort of the spectacle of volume, whether it's people, dogs, uh, statues, I mean, always just the, the spectacle of volume, chairs, whether it's the Jesus statues in Holy Mountain or the wooden chairs in this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, again, another scene I love in this is, is the scene with the man who is making the chairs. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. I think it's sweet, um, and just the again the the dark sort of absurdity of death and life as celebration, which he's the kind of guy that firmly seems to believe in. Believe in. Um, yeah, I could uh, I could go on and on. Film's very well shot. Looks great. Um, I love the cutouts. I don't want to say any more of the cutouts at the back end. Oh, what an image, huh? Just beautiful. Just beautiful and. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to stop there. I can keep going on. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to add. I mean, that's, I've, we kind of, I think we touched everything, but I'll, uh, say my make or breaks, uh, so many make or break scenes in yeah. this. It's really hard for me to pick one. Um, I don't want to sound like a pervert and say the golden shower or the, uh, nude child dancing scenes. Although those scenes are fantastic. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they are great. Um, but there is, a, there are a lot of, uh, really, 
interesting scenes in the film. Um, I like the scene on the beach a lot. It's really hard for me to kind of pick one. Oh, with a, with um, with uh, Axel. Yeah, I love that scene yeah. too. Yeah, I love that scene. I'm gonna go with the final shot though yeah, because really I think. Great. You know, when you talk about the cutouts and everything that leads up to that, the final words of the film and everything, if this ends up being Alejandro Jodorowsky's last film, he's one of the few artists, I think, who are going to be able to go out on his own terms. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's to be commendable. I mean, that is a commendable thing because, you know, a lot of people don't get to go out on their own terms. And uh, nope. he's lived a charm life, to say the least, which is interesting when you see where he came from. Uh, my MVT, man, this is tough too. I got to give it to Jodorowsky, but I feel like with his films, like every one of them, I feel like I give it to him. It's hard not and, to though. Yeah, I know. It's really hard not to, but I do got to say, uh, Pamela, what's, what's her last name? Pamela again? Flores. Oh man. She, she is so good in the movie. She is. And so And so brave. She does put uh, in a really brave performance in a lot of ways. Yeah, and she wouldn't get nominated for an Oscar for this because then it would draw attention. But man, this is as brave a performance as any female actor. And, but but Brontus too, man. Brontus is amazing yeah. in this film. Yeah. And the kid is great in it. These are just amazingly brave performances. And I just, you know, it won't get recognized, I don't think, by any academy or anything like that. But as years go on, people are going to be like, I cannot believe that he got people to do this stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> pretty amazing. And I can't believe the kid, the kid looked like him. Yeah. It was like just an unknown kid, like a, a Jewish kid who grew up in Chile. Yep. So my uh, score for this film is a nine out of 10. Nice. Um, I'll give it to, I'm going to go ahead and give it to, yeah, I guess I'll give it to Jodorowsky, but uh, as far as the MBT, but yeah, nine out of 10. That's a, it's a wonderful film outside of a few little, nooks and crannies there that I don't, that I don't love. Uh, you know, the opera singing all the time was a little too much and there's some other things, but some of Brontus' story when he gets gone, there are some great things that happen, but some of that almost feels like it kind of hangs around a little too long. Sure. And I kind of wanted to get back to Alejandrito and, and, uh, you know, what was going on with him and his mother and things, but I mean, I appreciate those parts of the story. I just felt like there were some scenes that maybe could have been a little less, but so be it. Nine out of ten. Nice, uh, make or break. I also could go with <laughs> a few scenes in the film. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm also going to go with the uh, with the end scene. I think it's again knowing the context of where he's at in his life when he shot that scene. Yeah. I think it's beautiful, uh, just cinematically, but also in reality, uh, <laughs> right. because of what it means to him. Um, and it was a really, really poignant moment. Uh, I'm going to go with as much as I'm gonna, I could say Jodorowsky. I'm going to go with Jodorowsky's passion and his passion for everything, his passion for his craft, his passion for life. Because without his passion, we wouldn't have this film at this point in his career. He yeah. think, fuck this, man. I made Holy Mountain 40 years ago. You think I need to do anything else? Yeah, like, true. You know, he didn't need to do anything after his early films. You know, he was making comics and art and mime and all this sorts of wild shit. Doesn't need to do anything else. But he does, and he makes a film that's vibrant and important and and beautiful and honest um, and, a, and a work of, uh, you know, labor of love with his with his children just really fantastic, man. To go out on those terms is a tremendous. 
Uh, my score for them is an 8.5. Just really great film. And like you said, to do it at this point in his career, my hat's off to him, man. Yeah, it's amazing. Truly. Uh, so with that, oh, let me make sure of something here. <laughs> Got to check that recording program oh, there, buddy. My heart was in my throat. Fuck, okay, we're good. <laughs> we're going to take a short break, and uh, we're going to go from uh, the coast of Chile to uh, New York City, NYC. I'm, like, uh, I'm going to grab Yafakato's panties and sniff them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Outstanding, man. Outstanding. We'll be right back. I don't want to grab Anthony Quinn's, so we'll be right back. <laughs> In a world without adventures and VHS, the book <laughs> comes a world with adventures and VHS, the book. Every journey begins in the mind. We're in trouble, Gary. This is highly illegal. In 2013, Noel Miller embarked on a series of VHS adventures that shook the world of podcasting to its very core. He's the kid everyone used to pick up. Now, through the power of the written word, he's back and ready to take those adventures to a whole new level. Described by its overzealous publisher as high fidelity for the video rental generation. And described by Mondo Movie Podcast Dan Audie as bringing the half-forgotten days of 80s video rental stores vividly back to life. It's moving, it's working, it's doing itself, it's working by itself. Adventures on VHS is an immersive trip through a long-forgotten era through some of the films that define it. An experience too terrifying for words. Available to buy now from AdventuresOnVHS.com with a whole host the fabulous full-color edition showcasing the glorious cover art of the VHS era. The story of one man's disturbing romance with an obsolete format and the weird and wonderful films that shaped his love of movies. And if this person is listening to my voice, I urge him in the name of law and order to desist from this one-man crusade. Adventures of VHS, the book. Buy it today. I'm going to kiss you. Your very life may just depend on it. You see, y'all, I left home at the age of 12. Mama couldn't understand it, but she wished me well. I remember saying, Some dad's gonna be a rough road ahead. I never forget the words my mama said. She said, talking about uh, 1972's Across 110th Street, directed by Barry Shear. Um, you sound like you're trying not to laugh through that. I am, because I'm thinking about... Uh, thinking about a greased-up Yafet Kato? Yeah, man. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's. Uh, 
I got to be honest with you, man. That's a, that's a rim job I would not want to pass along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. I'll stick with Gloria Andre. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so yeah, this uh, this film uh, two two new. <laughs> fuck, man. I got to get it together. I'm getting punchy already. We haven't started this review. Man, I got to tell you, the Dumb and Dumber sequel. I got the fucking like the the wallpaper for that. I guess is like a sponsor of IMDb this week. Yeah, uh, I've had to look at their two stupid faces through all through the, the last review and this review now. It's terrible. Um, two New York City cops go after amateur crooks who are trying to rip off the mafia and start a gang war. So again, Diabolic DVD. This is a Kino Lorber. Ooh, Kino Lorber release. Um. Yeah, they're putting out some cool stuff. They definitely are. They definitely, definitely are. So this is a film both of us have seen before. Um, I wanted to get a little more Afrocentric programming on the show, to be honest. Uh, as time goes on, I, you know, as I'm sure you do, I try to think, what have we not done much of lately? Hong Kong or Asian or spaghetti or, you know. Yeah. I want to get more kind of soul on the show sometimes. And Koto is a favorite of both of ours. Um, and while I wouldn't call this film black exploitation necessarily, I think... I think it it fits in that world. Like I'm okay with if with people lumping it in there because there yeah. is you know the soundtrack, you know Bobby Womack, which you've been hearing through the show, um, Yafakota, who's an icon of African American uh, film, um, and just the, the urban setting. I think all of those things lend themselves well to you know I'm okay with people putting it in there even if it's not quite there. Yeah, it's got all the ingredients, right? It's just not. I would I would agree with you. It's not truly black exploitation. It feels more like a almost like a B movie in the heat of the night. Um, yes, absolutely. Type uh, type thing going on and uh, yeah, I get the black exploitation angle, mm-hmm. but uh, it doesn't really. I, I think what I realized watching it this time was how good the drama is in this film. And talk about. Some quality acting. There's some really good acting in this movie. There's some really good acting in this film. Absolutely. Um, Barry Shear did a lot of TV work. He did The Karate Killers, which is kind of cool. Which I think you and I had spoken about. Oh, no, maybe I haven't even yeah. seen this. Yeah, we, we, we talked about the title before, but we've never seen it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, mostly TV work. I won't spend too much time stumbling around through his filmography. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... This film, uh, I always mix it up. Not mix it up. I shouldn't say mix it up. I always lump it in with Detroit 9000. I'd say that to you off the air because I feel like that's another one that gets kind of called black exploitation, but it covers a lot of the same ground because you get um, ethnically diverse cops with um, Alex Rocco and I can't remember the African American actor's name. You get those two as cops looking to solve a, a case. Um, which again is a bit of like a heisty kind of uh, frame up thing. So mm-hmm. very similar film, certainly. Um, I love the tagline for this. Uh, if you steal three hundred thousand dollars from the mob, it's not robbery; it's suicide. Yeah, it's great, yeah. man. It's really great. Uh, this film is a time nineteen seventy two or seventy three uh, New York, which um, I think. It gives us a you know, really authentic, gritty feel. And much like throughout this film, it just has a sense of urgency, like things are going to fucking boil over. Um, it's raw. I think this film 
does everything it sets out to do really well. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I was really surprised revisiting this film. Now I had never seen this film and then I saw Jackie Brown mm-hmm. and at the end of Jackie Brown, uh, as most of us know, uh, the Bobby Womack song across 110th street comes on. Yeah. And I thought, man, I've never seen that film. I've always wanted to see that movie. So I found the movie. I watched it, uh, liked it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. This time watching it, I was really kind of taken by, I remember the first time I watched it thinking, okay, it's your standard guys rob a poker game or something like that. And then they're up to their asses and deep shit, right? Oh yeah. What I realized this time was they really take the time in this film to focus on the stick up guys. Big time. And, and they're the, the kind of complexities of their relationship and why they're doing it, what they're doing it for. Some of it's semi-noble. Some of it, in the case of the Anthony Vargas character, is is obviously just pure decadence. But but you get the spectrum. Yeah, you get the spectrum, and I I really appreciate that this time. I mean, this is this is a quality movie. This is not. I know it gets kind of put into that black exploitation realm, like we talked about, but this is as good a drama, early '70s cop drama, as they were making at the time. Definitely. Definitely. And you know, what was interesting to see on a revisit too, for me was that Quinn executive produced this film. Yeah. So, you know, he really believed in the product. Well, the script, I mean, the script had to have been good because everybody in this movie has got some pretty quality moments. The Cotto and Quinn uh, relationship is interesting. Anthony Francios Uh, is just chewing it up, man. He's going to town. Oh, I love Franciosa in this film. He's, He's fantastic so in, this, in this film. Yeah, he is so good. Um, the the guys that play the uh, even Vargas, who's who's kind of playing the huggy bear thing. A little bit, yeah, he is absolutely. But he's fun as he always is, and he hasn't been on the show since uh, that uh, that El Gato Negro from uh, Havana Straits or whatever it was we watched. That one, ever old Julia film. I can't remember what it was called. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I always remember that El Gato Negro. Um, yeah. The uh, the other two actors, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, forgive me, but and I don't have my cheat sheet known as IMDb in front of me, but they're great in the movie. The female characters are all great. They're not just, uh, you know, lamb, uh, like uh, something to hang on the dude's arms in this film. No. I like the Anthony Quinn character who's both a racist and... A compassionate man at the same time. Yes, well, I think he he bring he's he's that sort of that city cop who's fed yeah. up. He's up to his fucking ears. He's overworked, underpaid. He's spread thin. He's frustrated. He's a compassionate person who's been hardened by the system and the surroundings. Yep. That was a great scene where he goes through the police station. Yeah. And in, in vintage seventies uh, cinema style, this police station's overrun with junkies and transvestites and hookers and. And just just like any Jodorowsky film, film, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or just like any Saturday Night at Sammy's house. Yeah. But the, uh, <laughs> it's like, calm down, guys. I'm going to do that Sammy search. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, you, pick your panties up. <laughs> yeah, give them to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Throw those over here. Yeah. No, the, uh, the, the scene where he's going through and he's, he's deciding, he's like judge, jury, and executioner. He's deciding who's worth keeping in there and who just has a vice that he feels 
you know, just get him out of here. Come on. This guy's not that bad a person. But at the same time, he's still a prick. I mean, he's not – this is not a good person. This Anthony Quinn is – he's a very troubled man. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And Kato, Kato is more of the straight person in the film. and But he – his arc is great, too, because as it goes along, he starts to see why Quinn is this way. Yes. Yeah, no, he definitely does. And they play off each other quite well. Like they play types without it seeming it seeming sort of broad stroke. The act both actors are good enough to give nuance to their yeah. performances. Yeah. Yeah. Um I don't think Quinn gets talked about enough when it comes no. to classic Hollywood actors. I always thought Anthony Quinn he played great heavies. Most of the time when I was growing up he was always the heavy in something. Yeah. But yeah. um he's always been a really good actor. And uh, what a great face, you know. I, I wish he would have been around longer. Uh, but he was one of those guys that lived life to the fullest. And his son was actually on our show before he ever was. Yeah. His son was in Band of the Hand, so figure that out. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah Quinn's a classic man. I mean, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, La Strada. He's really great in La Strada, speaking of Fellini. Yep. Um, I always think it's over the Greek with him. Yeah, uh, I know. You know, Guns and Navarro. The guy did so many things. You know, he cashed some checks at the end, certainly. But uh, yeah, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do, man? Yeah. Um, he wasn't uh, George Kennedy, but he was. He was. No. You know, he, he was trying. That's right. <laughs> um, I have to say, the one African American actor in this, I went through the, the the credits three times now as you were talking, try to find his name to see if it jumped out at me, and it didn't. But the one who has sort of noble intentions and, and there's a really great scene between him and his girlfriend about the frustration he feels. Yeah. The guy with the machine gun guy. Yes. Um, yeah. there's a really great scene with him. And for some reason, I thought that it was the same actor that was the lead in the spook who sat by the door. Yeah. I don't think it's it was not, that. it's not him. It's not him, but he reminded yeah. me of him. Yeah. Uh, that actor, he's been in a lot of stuff. He's he has. I know I've seen him in a lot of stuff. There's a yeah. lot of familiar faces to African-American uh, or like exploitation uh, audiences. Yeah, a lot of uh, those type of film character actors in those type of films. What's his name? Uh, uh, yeah, the problem is a lot of the people in here don't have their... Um, yeah, their photos. Their photos. <laughs> like yeah. uh, Paul Harris is another one. Uh, he's great in the film. Was he the guy that owns the clean the cleaners? He was the guy who mm, I thought Paul Harris was the actor. No, you know what? Paul Harris is the guy with the machine gun. That's his name. I remember his name now. Yeah, there's him, and then I was thinking of actually the heavy with the really unique voice. Um, you know, got the voice like this. Oh yeah, that guy. I can't remember what else I've seen that guy in. That guy's done a ton of stuff. Yeah, he's got those bloodshot eyes. Yeah, and he's like the, the sort of... Uh, I know he was in Trouble Man. I, think, I want to say he was in Trouble Man. I want to say. But, he's great in the movie, too. There's there's a lot of really good, good actors yeah. in the movie. A lot of the, the principles. And I like how this film, it's got an ensemble. Um, and it's not just the, the Kodo and Quinn power hour. Like, most people are given a chance to flesh out their characters enough to give justification... Uh, or to flesh them out enough to to give them some depth, and right. in a you know hundred minute film that's 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 hard to do because they got to keep things moving, you know, uh, at a pretty good pace with this detective or with this um with this case. 
Yeah. Um, you know, another thing too, thinking about, I like to always think of things that as time goes on, we see less and less in films, money. We don't see money in films a whole lot anymore or as much. And we're going to see that less and less in this age of, yeah, debit cards and everything else. Yeah, yeah. I think you'll see digital transactions. Yeah, but yeah, the uh, the um, the money's great. That fetish way, like uh, you can see Bert Young in there in the opening too. Young gets gunned down pretty quick, man. Yeah, it's dealt with. Bert Young. I thought Bert Young. I, I couldn't remember, and I thought, man, Bert Young's gonna be in this movie for a while. This is gonna be cool. And <laughs> the next thing I know, Bert Young's gone. He's done, man. He's eating lead. <clears throat> but yeah, I love the way they're counting the money in the beginning. So, yeah, it's really great. It's a fetish way of counting money, you know? Oh, big time. Um, we got to say about Fargus, um, he, along with the rest of it, the, like, they must have shot this thing in the middle of July because yeah. there are so many fucking sweaty dudes in this film. <laughs> I know. I know. Like, just Everybody's sweating. <laughs> everyone is at spinel levels of sweat. Yeah. <laughs> it is just insane. And uh, Fargus, man, I'll tell you, he picked a bad car for a getaway. Yeah, he did. Just a dreadful <laughs> car. Yeah. Um, and he is, and on top of picking a bad car, he's one of the worst, alongside Gator, he is one of the worst <laughs> getaway drivers in the history of cinema. He barely got one block. He's lucky he got out of that first block. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to compete with old Gator from Truck Turner. He's still. <laughs> Man, he's still the one. He's hitting, <laughs> he's playing bumper cars with everything. Yeah, it's everything. <laughs> it's hard to believe that almost six years later, he Gator is still the gold standard for getaway, or or the the not even the bronze, like the tinfoil standard for uh, <laughs> yeah. for getaway cars. I mean, there's been a lot of bad getaway drivers in the history of cinema. Man, Gator is Gator's that's something oh, special. He's bad, dude. Um, I love. Again, like I talked about, how everything feels like it's on the fucking verge of boiling over. And they even reference that in the film. Like, if this is the case, do you realize what this means to sort of race relations, to the city? And this was at an interesting time in America, too. I think, wasn't this around the time of, like, the gas shortage and the economy was in the shitter? And mm. I mean, it was a rough yeah. time in America, man. You're getting off Vietnam. There's a lot of men coming home. Not a lot of work. Um, yep. Tough, tough, tough time. You, you have the mix, too, of what you talked about, about the way they're showing the heat. Everybody's sweaty. And, well, exactly. And everyone feels the pressure. The people who robbed, the people who got robbed to get the money back, the cops to solve the case, the guys who were doing the robbing to to stay hidden. Everyone. You feel everyone's pressure in this film. Yep. Yep. Um, this, you know, and, you know, this would make an interesting double with is Trick Baby. The way it kind yeah. of looks at racial assumptions and, um, you know, it, it just interesting uh, sort of the notion of n the different races needing each other to pull something off to get into neighborhoods that they maybe otherwise wouldn't be as accessible to. Mm -hmm. um, we've said it before, and every time he's on the show, we'll say it, man, I love Kodo. I've, yeah, never, so seen, I've never seen him shit the bed. I love him. We're going to... Watching Koto in this film inspired my choice for next week's film for me. So. Oh, nice, nice. If you okay, because I, there's a film of his I've wanted to on this show forever, and <laughs> I've never picked it. And uh, okay, we'll see. Well, this, we'll see. this definitely isn't that film. Because <laughs> I, I, I was I was talking about Bone. Oh yeah, yeah, that's not it's which not I that love. Film, yeah. Oh, sure oh, we'll I, I think I know where you're going with this. Actually, does it got yeah. William Sanderson? Uh, no. Okay, you're going with Fight for Your Life. 
Um, no, nope. No, that's the one we could cover at some point too. Yeah, another good one. That's got some vile fucking characters in it. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Jeez. Um, what else do we got? Man, there's some serious ascots in this film. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there is, man. Like, not just in terms of quality of cut or material, but length. Yes. Like, there's some serious ascots. Um, what else do we got? I love the dude that sprained the afro sheen in his hair. I think it might have been, been, been uh, Huggy Bear, Fargus. Might have been. It may uh, have been him. I can't recall. But, you know, he's not... If he's going out, and first of all, he's blowing his money. He's making, he's making it rain, man. He's like Silva yeah, he's, in uh, in Milan. Yeah, he's doing. That's criminal. That's a stick up guy mistake number one, right there. When you spend the money, right? That's, oh yeah. You're not supposed to do that, man. You're supposed to lay low. Got to lay low, bro. And oh. he doesn't lay low, and he immediately draws attention. And it doesn't help that he's dressed like Huggy Bear and you know yeah. the bad getaway car and all kinds of other stuff. It's, there's all kinds of th- bad decisions he's making. <laughs> well, that's right. And when you're with a woman, you need to forget about that pillow talk <laughs> because that won't lead to any good happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wrote down a line that says, you're lucky. I think it's water. Do you remember what that meant? <laughs> no. no, I don't remember what that you're meant. Lucky, I think it's water. Uh, the cinematography for this is good in that. The film feels really fucking claustrophobic. It feels really tight. It feels like in any scene, there's a lot of people and they're like on top of each other, mm-hmm. which gives it that anxious feeling even more, which I, which I really yeah. like. Yeah. Um, oh, man. One of the dudes, uh, when they go to the club, but before Franciosa comes in to uh, make sure that uh, Huggy Bear's case gets dealt with, um, one of the actors, I think he says it to Gloria Hendry. He says, uh, or no, maybe she says it to him, or maybe it's one of the other girls. She says, most men don't talk when I'm popping that joint. Like talking about, <laughs> she's trying to suck the guy's dick. She says, most men don't talk when I'm popping that that joint. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to talk if she's going to be popping my joint. No, exactly. <laughs> other than some Gregorian monk chanting, maybe, but uh, <laughs> yeah. that's about it. Man. Yeah, but you talked about the precinct, man. I love that convention. You know, like you said, the trannies, the hustlers, you know, the kids, the juvie. I mean, just everyone. It's uh, it's great. Um I love the scene with the girlfriend when um, the gentleman we're talking about says, you're looking at a 42-year-old, you know, criminal uh, or a guy with a criminal record, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Really like that scene because much like another one of my favorites of, I'll say, the genre, meaning exploitation, Superfly. um, The thing I always take away from Superfly is the Ron O'Neill performance and the hunger and the desperation to get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And I feel like you feel that with the the stick up guys in this. Yep, you really feel that. Yeah, um, they really they really do. I mean, like we talked about, they really give the stick up guys a lot of character in this film. And you get to the point where any good filmmaker is going to make his bad guys as interesting as, or maybe maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe I should say these kind of gray area characters that seem to be trying to to go right, but they just can't help it that we kind of identify with. 
uh, because the, really the bad guys in this, if you want to say bad guy, I mean, I guess the heavy really is Franciosa, right? So he is the heavy. Yeah, and he and, and uh, he is a lot of fun. Yeah, no, he's. This is as much fun as I've had with Anthony Franciosa. I mean, he's always been a good-looking guy, and he's fine in some of the other films we've talked about. Wasn't he, wasn't he in Tenebrae? Was he, in he was in Tenebrae. He was the lead yeah. in Tenebrae. He's much more subdued than that. Yeah. He seemed like he aged a lot between 72 and Tenebrae. It's funny you say that because he is so fucking lively in this. That yeah. By the time he got to Tenebrae, he seemed like he was about 25 years older. Yeah, didn't he? That's, that's he should have been doing Euro crime at this time. Yeah. Oh man, he would have had a run. Yeah, has some great white teeth in this. Yeah, he's like he's like um, he's he's sort of like uh, like Conti and Silva mixed with more kind of good looks. Like it just he's really good. Reminds me it. of a shark. Like in this film, he's like a shark. Yeah, totally. It's like he's always circling the water when when everybody's weak. Yep. You know when like there's an injured fish or something, then Franciosa shows up because. You can tell, like, the introduction to his character that uh, he's always trying to impress the boss or somebody else in in the family, and he's very unsure of himself. But when he gets in a situation where he's the the top dog, the alpha male, uh, you know, he's really cruel, like taking out his anger for not being further up the chain. He's taking it out on people who he sees as lesser than him. He's that an asshole. Yeah, he does some really cruel shit. Yeah, he does. And, I, you know, there's Fargus has probably the easiest shoot of anyone on the, on the film. He has to make out with a lot of women, make it rain. Yeah. You know, but then he gets that whiskey glass to the face. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. a brutal scene, man. Yeah. I mean, a really yeah. brutal scene. And, uh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, really, really brutal. And the scene in Doc Johnson's office, who I found out, Richard Ward, the guy with the raspy voice, uh-huh. That scene's really great too, um, where with uh, with Quinn and Cato. Yes. Yeah, it's good. It's a really good scene because you see sort of who has the power and concessions that each side is willing to make at certain times to further their uh, cause and just the games they kind of have to play, the cops yep. included. Yep. You know, it's really great. Um, the one dude that works at the uh, dry cleaners, man, he's got a Canadian tuxedo through the whole film. Yeah, which, yeah, he does. <laughs> which is great. Uh, that other guy, man, he, he that other guy, he's never going to want to go back to the dry cleaner. He put his head in that uh, dry cleaning press there, buddy. Oh man, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's Jeez. right. Not good. Um, we get all the garbage strewn kind of streets and the staircases, just stuff that cinematically looks fantastic. Although to live there, another story altogether. Um, I love the line again from one of the African American characters in the film when he says, we're either going to end up rich or dead. And just that you kind of got to go all in Mm -hmm. and it's all or nothing. You know, um, I like that. I got nothing left to lose. Nothing left to lose. Nothing left to lose. Um, the torture in this is pretty brutal. Both films this week have some awful fucking torture scenes. Yeah, they do. Awful. They do. Um, you know this who... one. This one just feels sleazy though, compared to the other one, right? The other one's yeah more cinematic, and it truly is shocking. Uh, in Brontus's case, uh, <laughs> literally shocking. Oh, but, big uh, time. Uh, but this one, it just feels like like racist bullying. Yeah, it does. And it's, 
really gives you an uneasy feeling. Yeah, he totally does. Um, to kind of bring it full circle with the paper boy, since we were talking about golden showers earlier, uh, <laughs> David um, uh, Oye Lowo, he's the African uh, or the, the black actor that is in Paperboy. Oh yeah, yeah. Who who's actually who's he's from Oxford, England. That guy really with Kodo, Kodo slimmed down in this. I feel like if they were going to remake this or they're going to make like the Yafit Kodo story, this David Oyelowo could play Kodo to the to the T. Yeah. Like he, I felt like he he really was reminiscent of that. Um what else do we got? Man, there's a really great fire stunt. Oh yeah, yeah, we brought the fire stunt back. Jeez. This, film, this film's got a really good finale. It does have a really good finale. It's it's um just a fucking rooftop chase. I mean, it's got a lot going for it. That's the thing. This film, like for people that are into the films, we're into crime films. It's got everything you want. It's got like a tight, tightly wound, kind of coiled, ready to fucking spring back in your face, feeling throughout. Uh, well acted, well written. It's violent. It's It's got some twists and turns, not so much in terms of mystery, but you know the way the case is going um, and the revelations to the people that don't know what's what's going on. It's it's definitely got a lot going for it. So, and it's well scored, of course. Not just the um, the Womack stuff, but some of the more instrumental stuff that they use works great too. So, those yeah. are all my notes, though. Yeah, I don't have a lot more to add. I'll say uh, I think it's twenty three forty three sees J and B. Oh, those little mini bottles. Yeah, well, no, man, I thought bottles. those were, but I couldn't place it. Was it a big bottle? Yeah, there was a big bottle in there too. Oh man, I didn't catch. It. I thought I saw some mini bottles. No. <laughs> Uh, you know what? I wonder if Anthony Quinn and George C. Scott have ever done a film together. Because they, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what. If they could do an Anthony Quinn, George C. Scott, Yafai Kodo, Kodo film where all of them are in a scene together, because those guys can go from zero to 60. All three of those guys go zero to and, 60. And you know who else you get? You get fucking Popeye Doyle. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> That'd be amazing. Oh, man. Uh, it seems to me like Quinn and, and Scott probably work together at some point. If you got Quinn, Scott, and Hackman, and Kodo, and you put them in a scene like that, it would be like um, Carrie's house in the movie Carrie. That's what would happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, I would talk a little bit about it, but, I mean, there's some really, really good scenes in here that are well-written amongst the criminals. Um it shows both sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is to say, it shows the the positives and negatives of being a criminal. It shows the positives and negatives of being a cop that's on the bad side. Um, a lot more negatives than positives, don't get me wrong. But it does show that it's not always as simple as black and white, which is, I think, a nice touch because this is the kind of film that's dealing with black and white issues. Absolutely. Obviously. And uh, I like that it deals with the gray area in between with everything. Um, like I said, the really good finale, because what I like about the finale, I'm not going to get into what happens, but I like that characters, there's a scene where some characters are kind of stalking back because they want something to happen. Yes. And they let it happen by the man as opposed to them, but then they get the last word and the film has a really nice punctuation point with a final shot that... Even watching it this time, I, I always forget that it happens, and I uh, was really pleasantly surprised that it happened again. Not that it's a pleasant thing, but it's 
it's kind of like the only place that character can go at that point. Um, maybe not. Maybe there could have been some redemption in another way. But, you know, that that's just the way I felt about it and stuff. And no, I agree. I like it. It's a pretty pessimistic ending, really, in a lot of ways. It is. Uh, coming from a very pessimistic time, though. Yep. Uh, I think what gets missed in B-movies, in B-movie genres, call it exploitation, call it apocalyptic films, call it whatever you want to call it. But I think what's missed in our uh, what we call straight-to-DVD or straight-to-video or VOD films nowadays is the quality of acting and writing. Is that, you know, a lot of times we don't give these actors, there's a lot of good actors out there, and we don't always give them these scenes to to chew on. I think one of the things I love about the Coen brothers and Tarantino and people like this is that they give Robert Forster a whole bunch to chew on. They give... Um, I don't know, John Goodman, a scene to chew on. You know what I mean? They oh, yeah. they give these guys that are natural acting talents the ability to shine who, you know, they're not Brad Pitt. They're not uh, Channing Tatum. They're not, you know, they're not eyeball candy. You know, that I, I think what's really missing in the B-movie genre nowadays, too, is even they try to go for the, maybe even more so in some ways, they go for the eye candy before they go for the talent. And, uh, Sadly, yeah. I wish they would do that. I wish they, you know, I wish more of our B films that were were as well written as they were in the seventies and the early eighties. And I mean, sadly, that probably will never come to be again. But who knows? I mean, you still have independence, and they don't really consider those B movies. But um, this was a time when you could have a genre like black exploitation, and it could have a social statement. It could have a an entertaining storyline. And it can have poignant moments where characters really feel like they're at the end of their rope. Big time, and, man. Uh, I miss that in cinema. I really do. Oh, as do I. To be able to have your cake and eat it, too, it's... Uh, I mean, there's still a few guys out there fighting a the good fight, right? I mean, but There is. Sadly, <clears throat> it almost feels like sometimes I get a little down about... I mean, I'm not one to lament uh, filmmaking. I mean, as we always say, there's a lot of great films every year, but... And filmmaking still continues to be one of my favorite mediums, and it always will be. But I do miss, if I miss anything from that time, it's the fact that we used to let characters breathe more. They were less... Oh, I, don't get me wrong. I like my black and white bad guys. I like them as much as anybody. But mm-hmm. I really did appreciate that they gave these stick-up guys that desperation that uh, made, me really, made me really get attached to them. This film was... This film was an emotional watch. It's kind of surprising how emotional Big I got time. watched it. Not crying, but it's powerful. I really got stuff, caught. Man. Yeah, I got caught up in it, and really just kind of like for me, this a film I could compare this to in some ways was remember that film we did for um, uh, Diabol was it Diabolic or somewhere else that uptight film. The, oh uh, um, yeah, of course the uh, the Jules yeah. Descent film. Yeah, absolutely. That one I know. Yeah, I know one? you liked it more than I, I did. I loved it. Yeah, but. but it reminds me of that in a lot of ways. It has that kind of feel to it. Again, did the desperation and the and the sympathy for all the characters. Yep. 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 Very true. That's all I got really. Nice. Okay, my make or break scene. Um gosh. Um uh, I'm gonna go with the scene, yeah, the scene with Quinn and and Koto in uh, the office. Um 
I, I was in almost going with the, with the first scene when they meet, and it's kind of like the, they're both kind of circling each other a little bit, and yeah. you know that's a really good scene too. Um, my MVT is the um, the tension, not, not, not tension, but the just the the, the how palpable the the intangible the desperation is on all fronts here um how it gets that it just really nails that feeling of desperation and and uh claustrophobia i just it the moods it wants to evoke it evokes so i guess the 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 moods of the film uh and my score for the film is a seven point uh i'm gonna say 7.75 nice nice we're in agreement with a lot of stuff on this one. Uh, my make or break scene is also the same. That finale is great, but I did like that Quinn Cato Doc Johnson scene. Yeah, it's good, man. Really good. Kind of gets into the gray area and the morale and on the morals and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's also a great reveal because you don't know something about Quinn's character until that point, right? Yes, think exactly. Like why, he, why he stretched so thin? Oh yeah, um, exactly. My MVT, I had a couple that, you know, I could have went with Sheer because I don't really know if he did anything else. Yeah. About him. yeah. But then Franciosa, I thought about him as well because he's, he's fun. Yeah. Cotto's uh, great. Quinn's great. Uh, the guy that played Doug Johnson's great. Like you said, the, all the stick-up guys are all good. I mean, there's a lot of really good acting in this, but I'm going to go with the writing. I don't know who wrote the screenplay. Yeah, so good point, man. But, man, this thing is very well written, man. Like, these are, these are like, I could see... I can see if Tarantino is a fan of this film, I can see why, because this is written like one of his movies. Yeah. Not so much with pop culture references, but with characters that I wanted to hear talk more. Like I wanted more conversations between Quinn and Kato. I wanted more, or Kodo or Kato, whatever the fuck. I wanted yeah. uh, more conversations between the, the, the stick up guys. I wanted more conversations, period. Totally. Uh, because all the conversations they do have are so interesting. So, I even like the Central Park uh, border between the blacks and the whites. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, what you talked about being across 110th Street. Yep. <clears throat> and you hear that often in the film, like, we're going across 110th Street. I repeat, we're going across 110th Street. Mm-hmm. My score is the same as yours, 7.75 out of 10. Nice. Very solid film. Well worth owning on Blu-ray because it does look good. Nice. Very nice. Okay, cool. Um, so that is the show for this week. Uh, I, get that zipper. I don't know if you can hear the zipper or not. Oh, hopefully the, <laughs> hopefully that's Pamela Flores, a zipper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very nice. <laughs> what, uh, what have we got cooking on your side next week there? Bye. Oh yeah. Next week we're wide open. We don't have any guests or anything. So it's back to Sammy and Will picking. I'm picking a film from 1986 directed by Richard Serafian. Uh, this film is uh, got Yafet Kato. It's got uh, William Smith. And it's got uh, Gary Busey there, boy. This film is called Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> oh, man. That's amazing. I've been wanting to talk about this one for a while. so One of the great covers in yeah. VHS history. Yep. Outstanding. Okay. Maybe the last uh, really, not the last great performance from Gary Busey, but probably the last, maybe the last great lead performance from him, though. Yeah, maybe so, man, before he really uh, went over the yeah, deep end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. 
Um, I was going to go with, uh, I was going to take us to Istanbul, but I think I'm going to hold off for a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hold off. We'll get to that. We'll get to that sooner than later, but there's one I want to do. It's very different from the film you want to talk about. Uh, it's called boat people and it's from 1982. It's um, a Hong Kong film. And it's considered one of the greatest films in Hong Kong history. It's a very serious film. deals with um, a Japanese uh, cameraman going to Vietnam, post-Vietnam, and um, some of the things he sees and how it affects him. Oh, okay. Him. So, I've heard about this film. I've never seen it. Yeah, and it's it's really well-loved as far as Hong Kong cinema. Very serious film. Um, but, uh, you know, just I wanted to kind of stretch my legs with something uh, – you know, a little more serious, and uh, it's going to be amazing because we get Kodo in uh, the fucking aviator goggles, and uh, <laughs> we're going to get the boat people. So no, he, dress, he dresses up. He fly, Kodo has just to give everybody a taste. Kodo flies a uh, what are those planes called that uh, the they drop the mist on the crops? Oh, crop the, duster. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a crop duster, but when he when he gets upset, isn't, isn't Zama crop duster? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When he gets upset at some uh, level, or when he wants to fight back, he literally dresses in what looks like a Red Baron costume. Oh, that's and uh, <laughs> and William Smith has an amazing haircut in it, and uh, <laughs> Gary Busey uh, deals some justice in some truly awful ways. And when I say awful, I mean completely cruel. <laughs> oh man, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it'll be fun to talk about those uh, two films. Uh, I like it when we mix the absurd with the serious. <laughs> so is the episode going to be called The Eye of the Boat People? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Amazing. I have the Amazing. boat people. And <laughs> what is this one going to be called? I can't even think. What is it? Uh, dance what is it? Of, the Dance of 110th Street? <laughs> maybe. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Dance, of 100, dance, dance Across 110th Street, maybe? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Something like that. Fuck, you're gonna do <laughs> William Smith. That's gonna be outstanding. Can't wait to see his hair. Oh, so have you ever seen it? I have seen it, but I was a kid. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Okay. So yeah, don't, I don't. You, I don't, don't remember what his hair looks like. Uh, yeah, it's it's a questionable <laughs> hairstyle to say the least. He loved going with. He loved taking risks with his haircut. Man, he'd shave his head like like this. For a yeah, film. I don't know. That was something about him. He uh, he would always shave his head. So I think he. He, uh, I think he would just in between movies, like whatever he was going to be in a post-apocalyptic movie or whatever, he would just, you know, okay, I'll just, I'll just do this and he show up. I mean, who's going to tell William Smith it looks like shit? The guy's yeah. so intimidating, <laughs> nobody's going to say anything to him. That's right, man. <laughs> oh fuck. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. I've never seen boat people either. And I've always wanted to. I, I didn't know what it was at first when you first said it. At first said boat people, I thought, man, this sounds like it's a wacky. And you said 82 in Hong Kong, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be one of those wacky Hong Kong films. But then when you talked about the Vietnam premise, I remember reading about this some time ago. So I've always wanted to see it, so that's cool. I almost went with a wacky Hong Kong comedy. Um, but, uh, yeah, I decided to go with this because it's, it's, you know, a serious film that uh, that would be good to, to, good to talk about. So we'll see how yeah, it goes. We we got some good stuff coming up. I know we've been talking behind the scenes with some people. We got some good stuff coming up. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. All right. So, all right, man. We will uh, we'll talk next week. And with that, as always, there is one thing left to say. Adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman 
at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 